Hello and welcome to Tea and Old Books. This is episode 8 and we are reading The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. And this episode we're going to read chapters 15 and 16 of this crime novel. This is day 9 of the Spanish lockdown. It's nice and sunny. It was raining earlier, but it's the sun's come out now. Not that I can really enjoy it but it makes the flat nice and bright. Today I'm drinking gunpowder tea, which is a green tea that is very sort of tightly dried together into little balls. And when you add the hot water, it unfurls, much like the jasmine tea I drank a few episodes ago. This is a completely different tea. At some point I am going to be repeating these teas because I'm beginning to get to the end of my stash, but I still do have a few to go. I do collect tea. Let's have a drink. That's quite hot. And let's talk about what happened last episode. So last episode, episode 7, we read chapters 13 and 14. And Rachel was doing some sleuthing during that episode. She was calling up old contacts and asking them what they knew about events that were happening. So... We learned some more about Louise, not very much, but Louise is feeling better. She's had some visitors. She's tried to break it off with Halsey. I mean, she kept telling him that she wasn't going to marry him and he refused to accept it, which I think is quite rude. But she says that she can't marry him. And Rachel, during this, is hiding in the corner, like outside, listening in. Um, And she thinks that, of course, Louise must love Halsey, because how could you not love Halsey? Halsey is the best type of man. He is everybody's dreamboat. So thinks Aunt Rachel. So Louise loves Halsey, supposedly, but she can't marry him because she's engaged to somebody else. And this is where Rachel goes on a bit of a sleuth hunt. And she discovers that Louise is engaged to Dr. Walker, who is the family doctor of Louise's family and the physician or the doctor of her stepfather, who's just died. So he died a few chapters ago. And she's engaged to be married to the doctor, of which we know nothing, but Rachel already hates him because he's Halsey's love interest. Not love interest, love rival. He's Halsey's love rival. Um, And during this sleuthing to find out more about whether Louise is truly engaged to him, Rachel discovers that Dr. Walker has architectural plans and permission, presumably, to build a house on the Armstrong land near where this this house that she's rented is. Um, Louise's mother is coming back and she's asked Rachel to vacate the summer house, which Rachel is refusing to do because... She's having a bad enough time of it already, what with all the murders and intrigue going on. She, at the very least, wants to spend the summer there. I mean, if it was me, I would think about moving anyway. Um, so that's it. I think that Louise still doesn't know that her, her fam- some members of her family are dead. So her stepfather and her brother are both dead. And so far, no one's told her. So I'm expecting in the next two chapters for somebody to tell Louise that half her family is dead. We will see if this... In- is the case. So let's start reading. 
and we're starting with chapter 15. Liddy gives the alarm. The next day, Friday, Gertrude broke the news of her stepfather's death to Louise. She did it as gently as she could, telling her first that he was very ill and finally that he was dead. Louise received the news in the most unexpected manner, and when Gertrude came to tell me how she had stood it, I think she was almost shocked. She just lay and stared at me, Aunt Ray, she said. Do you know, I believe she is glad, glad, and she is too honest to pretend anything else. What sort of man was Mr. Poor Armstrong, anyhow? He was a bully as well as a rascal, Gertrude, I said, but I am convinced of one thing. Louise will send for Halsey now, and they will make it up. For Louise had steadily refused to see Halsey all that day, and the boy was frantic. We had a quiet hour, Halsey and I, that evening, and I told him several things. About the request that we give up the lease to Sunnyside, about the telegram to Louise, about the rumours of an approaching marriage between the girl and Dr Walker, and last of all, my own interview with her the day before. He sat back in a big chair with his face in the shadow, and my heart fairly ached for him. He was so big and so boyish. When I had finished, he drew in a long breath. Whatever Louise does, he said, nothing will convince me, Aunt Ray, that she doesn't care for me. And up to two months ago, when she and her mother went west, I was the happiest fellow on earth, and something made a difference. She wrote to me that her people were opposed to the marriage, that her feeling for me was what it had always been, but that something had happened which had changed her ideas for the future. I was not to write until she wrote to me. Whatever occurred, I think I was to think the best I could of her. It sounded like a puzzle. When I saw her yesterday, it was the same thing, only perhaps worse. Halsey, I asked, have you had any idea of the nature of the interview between Louise Armstrong and Arnold the night he was murdered? It was stormy. Thomas says once or twice he almost broke into the room. He was so alarmed for Louise. Another thing, Halsey, I said. Have you ever heard Louise mention a woman named Carrington? Nina Carrington? Never, he said positively. For try as we would, our thoughts always came back to that fate- fateful Saturday night and the murder. Every conversational path led to it, and we all felt that Jameson was tightening the threads of evidence around John Bailey. The detective's absence was hardly reassuring. He must have had something to work on in town, or he would have returned. The papers reported that the cashier of the Traders' Bank was ill in his apartments at the Knickerbocker, a condition not surprising considering everything. The guilt of the defunct president was no longer in doubt. The missing bonds had been advertised and some of them discovered. In every instance they had been used as collateral for large loans, and the belief was current that not less than a million and a half dollars had been realised. Everyone connected with the bank had been placed under arrest and released on heavy bond. Was he alone in his guilt, or was the cashier his accomplice? Where was the money? The estate of the dead man was comparatively small. A city house on a fashionable street, Sunnyside, a large estate, largely mortgaged, an insurance of $50,000, and some personal property. That was all. The rest lost in speculation, probably, the papers said. There was one thing which looked uncomfortable for Jack Bailey. He and Paul Armstrong together had promoted a railroad company in New Mexico, and it was rumoured that together they had sunk large sums of money there. The business alliance between the two men added to the belief that Bailey knew something of the looting. 
His unexplained absence from the bank on Monday lent colour to the suspicion against him. The strange thing seemed to be his sur surrendering himself on the point of departure. To me, it seemed the shrewd calculation of a clever rascal. I was not actively antagonistic to Gertrude's lover, but I meant to be convinced one way or the other. I took no one on faith. That night, the Sunnyside ghost began to walk again. Liddy had been sleeping in Louise's dressing room, on a couch, and the approach of dusk was a signal for her to barricade the entire suite. Situated, as it was, beyond the circular staircase, nothing but an extremity of excitement would have made her pass it after dark. I confess myself that the place seemed to me to have a sinister appearance, but we kept that wing well lighted, and until the lights went out at midnight it was really cheerful, if one did not know its history. On Friday night, then, I had gone to bed, resolved to go at once to sleep. Thoughts that insisted on obtruding themselves, I pushed resolutely to the back of my mind, and I systematically relaxed every muscle. I fell asleep soon and was dreaming that Dr. Walker was building his new house immediately in front of my windows. I could hear the thump-thump of the hammers, and then I walked to a knowledge that someone was pounding on my door. I was up at once, and with the sound of my footstep on the floor, the low knocking ceased, to be followed immediately by sibilant whispering through the keyhole. Miss Rachel! Miss Rachel! someone was saying over and over. Is that you, Liddy? I asked, my hand on the knob. For the love of mercy, let me in, she said in a low tone. She was leaning against the door, for when I opened it, she fell in. She was greenish-white, and she had a red and black barred flannel petticoat over her shoulders. Listen, she said, standing in the middle of the floor and holding on to me. Oh, Miss Rachel, it's the ghost of that dead man hammering to get in. Sure enough, there was a dull thud, thud, thud from some place near. It was muffled. One rather felt than heard it, and it was impossible to locate. One moment it seemed to come, three taps and a pause from the floor under us. The next, thud, 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 it came apparently from the wall. It's not a ghost, I said decidedly. If it was a ghost, it wouldn't rap. It would come through the keyhole. Liddy looked at the keyhole. But it sounds very much as though someone is trying to break into the house. Liddy was shivering violently. I told her to get me my slippers and she brought me a pair of kid gloves. So I found my things myself and prepared to call Halsey. As before, the night alarm had found the electric lights gone. The hall save for its night lamp was in darkness. As I went across to Halsey's room, I hardly know what I feared, but it was a relief to find him there, very sound asleep and with his door unlocked. Wake up, Halsey, I said, shaking him. He stirred a little. Liddy was half in, half out of the door, afraid, as usual, to be left alone and not quite daring to enter. Her scruples seemed to fade, however, all at once. She gave a suppressed yell, bolted into the room and stood tightly, clutching the footboard of the bed. Halsey was gradually waking. I've seen it, Liddy wailed. A woman in white down the hall. I paid no attention. Halsey, I persevered. Someone is breaking into the house. Get up, won't you? It isn't our house, he said sleepily. And then he roused the exigency of the occasion. All right, Aunt Ray, he said, still yawning. If you'll let me get into something. It was all I could do to get Liddy out of the room. The demands of the occasion had no influence on her. She had seen the ghost, she persisted, and she wasn't going into the hall. 
but I got her over to my room at last, more dead than alive, and made her lie down on the bed. The tappings, which seemed to have ceased for a while, had commenced again, but they were fainter. Halsey came over in a few minutes and stood listening and trying to locate the sound. Give me my revolver, Aunt Ray, he said, and I got it, the one I had found in the tulip bed, and gave it to him. He saw Liddy there and divined at once that Louise was alone. You let me attend to this fellow, whoever it is, Aunt Ray, and go to Louise, will you? She may be awake and alarmed. So in spite of her protests, I left Liddy alone and went back to the east wing. Perhaps I went a little faster past the yawning blackness of the circular staircase, and I could hear Halsey creaking cautiously down the main staircase. The rapping, or pounding, had ceased, and the silence was almost painful. And then suddenly, from apparently under my very feet, there rose a woman's scream, a cry of terror that broke off as suddenly as it came. I stood frozen and still. Every drop of blood in my body seemed to leave the surface and gather around my heart. In the dead silence that followed, it throbbed as if it would burst. More dead than alive, I stumbled into Louise's bedroom. She was not there. It's the end of chapter 15. So I think clearly the woman wandering around in a nightgown is probably Louise. I don't know why Liddy went straight for a ghost. I mean, she's just left a woman who was probably wearing a white nightgown at the time, alone in her room. And the woman screaming, I'm going to guess, is Louise. So, what's happened to Louise? What's happening in the night? Mysteriousness. Okay, we'll go on to chapter 16. Just drinking some tea. Okay, chapter 16. In the early morning. I stood looking at the empty bed. The coverings had been thrown back and Louise's pink silk dressing gown was gone from the foot where it had lain. The night lamp burned dimly, revealing the emptiness of the place. I picked it up, but my hand shook so that I put it down again, and got somehow to the door. There were voices in the hall, and Gertrude came running toward me. "'What is it?' she cried. "'What was that sound? Where is Louise?' "'She is not in her room,' I said, stupidly. "'I think it was she who screamed.' Liddy had joined us now, carrying a light. We stood huddled together at the head of the circular staircase, looking down its shadows. There was nothing to be seen, and it was absolutely quiet down there. Then we heard Halsey running up the main staircase. He came quickly down the hall to where we were standing. There's no one trying to get in. I thought I heard someone shriek. Who was it? Our stricken faces told him the truth. Someone screamed down there, I said, and and Louise is not in her room. With a jerk, Halsey took the light from Liddy and ran down the circular staircase. I followed him more slowly. My nerves seemed to be in a state of paralysis. I could scarcely step. At the foot of the stairs, Halsey gave an exclamation and put down the light. Aunt Ray, he called sharply. At the foot of the staircase, huddled in a heap, her head on the lower stair, was Louise Armstrong. She lay limp and white, her dressing gown dragging loose from one sleeve of her nightdress and the heavy braid of her dark hair stretching its length a couple of steps above her head as if she had slipped down. She was not dead. Halsey put her down on the floor and began to rub her cold hands while Gertrude and Liddy ran for stimulants. 
As for me, I sat there at the foot of that ghostly staircase, sat because my knees wouldn't hold me, and wondered where it would all end. Louise was still unconscious, but she was breathing better, and I suggested that we get her back to bed before she came to. There was something grisly and horrible to me, seeing her there in almost the same attitude and in the same place where we had found her brother's body. And to add to the similarity, just then, the hall clock far off struck faintly three o'clock. It was four before Louise was able to talk, and the first rays of dawn were coming through her windows, which faded, faced the east, before she could tell us coherently what had occurred. I give it as she told it. She lay propped in bed, and Halsey sat beside her, unrebuffed, and held her hand while she talked. I was not sleeping well, she began, partly, I think, because I had slept during the afternoon. Liddy brought me some hot milk at ten o'clock, and I slept until twelve. Then I wakened, and I got to thinking about things, and worrying, so I could not go to sleep. I was wondering why I had not heard from Arnold since the... Since, since I saw him that night at the lodge. I was afraid he was ill, because he was to have done something for me, and he had not come back. It must have been three when I heard someone rapping. I sat up and listened, to be quite sure, and the rapping kept up. It was cautious, and I was about to call Liddy. Then suddenly I thought I knew what it was. The east entrance and the circular staircase were always used by Arnold when he was out late, and sometimes, when he forgot his key, he would rap, and I would go down and let him in. I thought he had come back to see me. I didn't think about the time, for his hours were always erratic, but I was afraid I was too weak to get down the stairs. The knocking kept up, and just as I was about to call Liddy, she ran through the room and out into the hall. I got up then, feeling weak and dizzy, and put on my dressing gown. If it was Arnold, I knew I must see him. It was very dark everywhere, but of course I knew my way. I felt along for the stair rail and went down as quickly as I could. The knocking had stopped and I was afraid I was too late. I got to the foot of the staircase and over to the door on the east veranda. I had never thought of anything but that it was Arnold until I reached the door. It was unlocked and opened about an inch. Everything was black. It was perfectly dark outside. I felt very queer and shaky. Then I thought perhaps Arnold had used his key. He did strange things sometimes and I turned around. Just as I reached the foot of the staircase, I thought I heard someone coming. My nerves were going anyway, there in the dark, and I could scarcely stand. I got up as far as the third or fourth step, that I felt that someone was coming toward me on the staircase. The next instant, a hand met mine on the stair rail. Someone brushed past me, and I screamed. Then I must have fainted. That was Louise's story. There could be no doubt of its truth, and the thing that made it impressively awful to me was that the poor girl had crept down to answer the summons of a brother who would never need her kindly offices again. Twice now, without apparent cause, someone had entered the house by means of the east entrance, had apparently gone his way unhindered through the house and gone out again as he had entered. Had this unknown visitor been there a third time the night Arnold Armstrong was murdered, or a fourth the time Mr Jameson had locked someone in the clothes chute? Sleep was impossible, I think, for any of us. We dispersed finally to bathe and dress, leaving Louise little the worse for her experience. But I determined that before the day was over, she must know the true state of affairs. Another decision I made, and I put it into execution immediately after breakfast. 
I had one of the unused bedrooms in the east wing, back along the small corridor, prepared for occupancy, and from that time on, Alex, the gardener, slept there. One man in that barn of a house was an absurdity, with things happening all the time, and I must say that Alex was as unobjectionable as anyone could possibly have been. The next morning also, Halsey and I made an exhaustive examination of the circular staircase, the small entry at its foot, and the card room opening from it. There was no evidence of anything unusual the night before, and had we not ourselves heard the rapping noises, I should have felt that Louise's imagination had run away with her. The outer door was closed and locked, and the staircase curved above us, for all the world like any other staircase. Halsey, who had never taken seriously my account of the night Lydia and I were there alone, was grave enough now. He examined the panelling of the wainscoting above and below the stairs, evidently looking for a secret door, and suddenly there flashed into my mind the recollection of a scrap of paper that Mr. Jameson had found among Arnold Armstrong's effects. As nearly as possible, I repeated its contents to him, while Halsey took them down in a notebook. I wish you had told me that before, he said, as he put the memorandum carefully away. We found nothing at all in the house, and I expected little from any examination of the porch and grounds. But as we opened the outer door, something fell into the entry with a clatter. It was a cue from the billiard room. Halsey picked it up with an exclamation. That's careless enough, he said. Some of the servants have been amusing themselves. I was far from convinced. Not one of the servants would go into that wing at night unless driven by dire necessity. And a billiard cue. As a weapon of either offence or defence, it was an absurdity, unless one accepted Liddy's hypothesis of a ghost. And even then, as Halsey pointed out, a billiard-playing ghost would be a very modern evolution of an ancient institution. That afternoon, we, Gertrude, Halsey and I attended the coroner's inquest in town. Dr. Stewart had been summoned also, it transpiring that in the early Sunday morning, when Gertrude and I had gone to our rooms, he had been called to view the body. We went, the four of us, in the machine, preferring the execrable roads to the matinee train, with half of Casanova staring at us. And on the way we decided to say nothing of Louise and her interview with her stepbrother the night he died. The girl was in trouble enough as it was. Oh, it's the end. Oh, just sort of, every now and then it sort of just sort of stops. So we have our cliffhanger endings and then just our mundane endings where they just get in a car and that's the end. So, ooh, events at night again. So someone has been sneaking into the house and going up the circular staircase. So clearly this, there's something to do with the staircase, like a secret door in the staircase, or maybe like maybe one of the steps you can fold it up and there's something in the stair. That's a guess. That's my guess. We will see. So the next chapter, which is chapter 17, is called A Hint of Scandal. So I imagine they're going to hear something interesting at the coroner's inquest. But that's going to have to wait till tomorrow. I can't wait. So I will continue reading this wonderful book tomorrow. I wish you all well.